book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. Just as a reminder again, uh, as hopefully you did see in the digital bulletin that we sent out on Thursday, the search committee just uh, posted our opening for the lead pastor and soon we'll be receiving uh, applications and we're issuing a call to the church to pray for this process from the get-go from the first day that the uh, pastoral profile went out. And so Thursday's digital bulletin also includes a five-day plan with prayer suggestions for each day of the week, starting on Monday. Uh, There are some copies in the Connect Center for those of you who aren't able to print it yourselves. And feel free to continue to use this guide week after week uh, as these requests for the search committee and the search process are ongoing. So you can just cycle through them week by week. A lot of work went into them and they will really lead you to him. Our passage for today really in many ways nails the heart of what we will be looking for in a pastor, really the heart of our mission, and that is to be a disciple-making family. Our passage for today nails the heart of why it's so important uh, in our day and age that the church go deeper by being true disciples of Christ, by being disciple-makers. That's what our country needs. What's going on in our country nails the heart of it as well. In a day when we're drawing lines in the sand between evil and good, perhaps like never before, when uh, more view opposing political parties and candidates and points of view as evil like never before, in a day when more people than ever think that they've got a corner on the truth, we need the passage that we're going to be going through today. My mind keeps going back to something that Alexander Solzhenitsyn said. I'll never forget reading his Gulag Archipelago way back when I was in high school in 1970. The Gulag Archipelago was where Soviets sent the dissidents to be imprisoned and tortured and killed. It was the heart of what Ronald Reagan called the evil empire. Solzhenitsyn was in prison near the end of World War II for disparaging comments he made in private about Joseph Stalin. And his years there gave him striking insights into the realities of uh, human nature. And most of all, not just their nature, but his own nature. He said this, it was granted me to carry away from my prison years on my bent back which nearly broke beneath its load, this essential truth. It was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. And through all human hearts, it is impossible to expel evil from the world, but it is possible to constrict it within each person. And this is where we must begin. His point was that when you're in an evil empire, uh, that uh, the war has got to begin not with them, but with me. Oh, but surely, you might be thinking, the worst evil is in them, whoever they might be. 
Here's how Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, who was in prison by the Nazis. He came to see the same thing Solzhenitsyn did. He saw that Hitler was not the only enemy. He wrote this while he was in prison. There is within us all a sleeping animal that can be both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, it seizes mastery over our spirits. There is a sudden secret smoldering fire as the flesh is kindled and soon we are in flames. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or pride or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. At this moment, God becomes quite unreal to us and everything within me rises up against his word. That's why Bonhoeffer said, do what you think is right and repent as you go. We need to do the same as we vote because it's not just them, it's us. We need a posture of humility. No matter what, you know, our political party, lest we just throw fuel on the fire. Hudson Taylor, one of the greatest missionaries in the history of the church, put it this way. Maybe you can relate. I can't tell you how buffeted I am sometimes by temptation. I've prayed, I've agonized, I've fasted, I've made resolutions, I've read the Bible more, all without effect. Sometimes every day, even almost every hour, the consciousness of sin and failure oppresses me. I know that in Christ lies the answer, but the more I struggle for holiness, the more it eludes my grasp till hope itself almost dies out. I know that in Christ is all I need, but the practical question is how to get it out. What am I to do? This comes from a book that's a classic called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. And it's a secret that we'll be learning today. What am I to do? What are we to do? We come to a passage today that tells us what to do. Where it's all got to begin if we're really interested in doing something about the evil that's in the world. And if we're really interested in healing our land. The book of Romans divides pretty cleanly into three overall sections. And each section divides pretty cleanly into three parts. And today we come to the last part of the first section. Part one of section one, if you remember, was man's moral state, universal wickedness. Part two of section one was God's masterstroke, faith righteousness. And then starting today, we come to the last part, part three of section one, which is Romans six, seven, and eight. And that is what I've called our miracle mindset. Our miracle mindset, which can make a miracle of our lives, which is at the heart of the solution when it comes to the problem of sin and the problem of our nation. Last week, once again, uh, and once again this week, we have some pretty deep waters to go through theologically. But at the end, we're going to see how huge a difference it can make practically. And so stay with me. It's in Romans 6, starting uh, in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into his death? 
Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection." Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a lot. There's a lot there. And it's all summed up conveniently in verses 6 and 7, which are at the very heart of this passage. And so to get our bearings, we need to begin here. Because this is where he tells us about what really was our divorce. The breakup of a really, really uh, bad marriage that we were all in. It's in verse 6. Listen. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. He begins with two words, knowing this. The secret of overcoming sin has to do with knowing something, or at least it starts there, with knowing the truth which is really at the heart of our mission. We seek to know and show the truth and love of Jesus Christ, knowing the truth. Our first value is that we want to be biblically grounded. We seek to know the truth, and it starts right up here. Knowing this, Paul says, and you see it all through Scripture, knowing what? That our old self was crucified with him. And then he explains it, that our body of sin might be done away with. Knowing what? Well, that's the New American Standard, which is not the best translation. In the margin, it says that our body of sin was made powerless, which is the way the NIV translates it, the better translation. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that the body of our sin might be made powerless over us. Now, the old man, the body of our sin, and the flesh are different names for the same thing, and that is what Bonhoeffer called the beast that's in us all. And he's saying that he's been rendered powerless, which is the key word in the entire passage. So stay with me as we unpack it for just a bit. The Greek word that's translated render powerless here in Romans 6 is katargethe. And it's the same word that Paul uses exactly one chapter later in Romans 7, 6, where he says that we've been released, ketargethemen, which is a different, different form of the same verb, we've been released from the law, which means that our bondage to the law has been broken, which in chapter 7 he says is like a marital bond. So you might want to write Romans 6, 6, uh, uh, Romans 7, 6, next to Romans 6, 6. In Romans 7, 6, katargeo, and relating the scripture interpret itself, the near context, katargeo means divorce. 
And he's saying the same thing in Romans 6, 6. That we're no longer bound, married to the old man like we used to be. When he says that the body of our sin has been katargethe, he means that the body of our sin, a.k.a. the flesh or the old man or the hideous beast, has been severed from us. As in, at last, the divorce has finally gone through. The marriage between the flesh and the spirit has been severed so the flesh no longer has to have the same kind of hold on us. You might paraphrase it like this. Again, Romans 6.6. 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that the body of our sin might be, and you could write these three words in there, divorced from us, that we should no longer be slaves to that sinful old beast. And how is it that we've been divorced? Well, next verse, verse 7. For he who has died is freed from sin. Once again, there are overtones of chapter 7 here. Paul goes on in chapter 7 to say that marriage is only binding as long as both partners are alive. That is, it's until death do us part. And as we're about to see, that happened when you believe Christ was crucified in your place, that you died in him. When you accepted his death as your own, the depraved person that you were once legally in God's eyes died in God's eyes. He died with Christ. For as Paul says here, he who has died is freed from sin. You've been freed from old man's sin. Which means you're no longer, you know, in a marriage from hell. Right? And so now it's possible not to be controlled by him. Knowing this, there is a miracle mindset that can make a miracle of our lives, as we'll see. A miracle mindset by which, at will, we can loose ourselves from the influence of the old man and link ourselves to Christ, which can make us more and more like him. So Romans 7 is about our divorce from the law, as we'll see in a few weeks. And Romans 6 is about our divorce from the old man. But the problem is this, if you're anything like me, and I, I know you are, it's that he's still there, right? Boy, is he there. And his desires, like Bonhoeffer said, can be sudden and fierce. They can be subtle, powerful. He can weigh you down like this ball and chain as you stumble along in the Christian life, three steps forward, two steps backward. What Paul's saying is this, we've been divorced from a beast of a man, but we're still living with him. We're still, we're still under the same roof with our ex, which is why I've titled this message, Life with Your Ex. Can you imagine what that would be like? Some of you have been there. Can you imagine what it would be like to live under the same roof with your former spouse for the rest of your life. Especially if they were like, you know, a total beast with no redeeming qualities. Which, of course, is never true of any person. A beast who's from the pit of hell. Who can mess with our minds, you know, from the inside out. Who knows how to press all our buttons. 
And if that's the problem, then the solution, according to Paul, is a mindset on Christ. And we'll see how in a bit. So the heart of the passage is here in verses 6 and 7, which refers to chapter 7, which has to do with the divorce, which makes a miracle mindset possible. And Lord willing, having now looked at the heart of the passage in verses 6 and 7, this will help us keep our bearings as we move through the rest of the passage, and then we'll apply it. Back to verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Last time we were, uh, uh, last week we saw that, there, that, 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 that there's great sin but greater grace. In fact, sometimes God, God actually allows sin to increase, to work a, a greater good. So some people were saying to Paul, so why not uh, sin all the more so greater glory, greater good could come? Why not eat, drink, and be merry? Well, Paul's answering that question here. Are we to continue in sin that great might, grace might increase? Meganoito in the Greek, that's the strongest of negatives. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? This is an image of dying to someone or something that we were once related to. And it's an image that leads up to the image of marriage and divorce in verses 6 and 7, as we've seen. So putting it in that context, he's saying, once you've been freed from your slavery to sin, um, uh, once you've been freed from a marriage from hell that turned you into a slave, how could you possibly even want to go back to it? We've been divorced from a beast. Why go back to him? And then he explains how the divorce happened. Or do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Here we see that the divorce went through when we died. When, when we were baptized into Christ, which happened when we became a Christian. When we believed his death was our, our own. To be baptized with him means to be united with him in his death and resurrection, which happened when you identified with him, when you accepted his work as your own, when you said, thank you for dying on the cross for me. When, when you identified with Christ spiritually by faith, you were unified with him legally by God's divorce decree. When you said... Uh, as you, and you were uh, unified with him actually by the spirit of Christ coming into you. Your new partner, verse four. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism unto death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Notice he says likeness of his resurrection that we now experience. It's not exactly the fullness of it. God knows. There's a whole lot more to go. Because we still have this old man in us. Our spirits are united with Christ, but not our bodies where old man's sin still lives. So we don't have the fullness of a glorified life, but we can and shall, Paul says, increasingly walk in newness of life that is a completely different dimension from the old life and the likeness of his resurrection through a miracle mindset that can free us from that wily old man, as we're going to see. 
And then skipping over the two verses that we went through, the heart of the passage, um, he picks it up again in verse eight. Now, if we have died with Christ, again, if you identified with his death by believing that he died for you, we believe that we shall also live with him. He's saying we will live a new life. No matter how you're struggling, you will. Increasingly now, but completely then, uh, when we go from the likeness of his resurrection uh, to the fullness of his re- resurrection uh, that we will experience in our new bodies. One day we'll leave our old bodies behind. Uh, this earthly tent, Paul calls our bodies, in which we groan, 2 Corinthians 5, 4. Uh, th- th- this, one day we'll leave this, this, <laughs> this haunted house of a body behind where the old man still lives. Paul says, we believe it will happen. Just as certainly as uh, the divorce is now final because we've died with Christ, so there will be a final separation when we get a new body and a new house without the old man. So that's the story he's telling here. Now usually, of course, the separation comes immediately after the divorce if not before. But in our case, it can't come until long after the divorce. Because until our physical bodies have died, the old man still has like this right of occupancy that we gave him when we chose to sin. And he will not surrender that right until our dying breath, till death do us part. We've not parted company, but we've died to him. And so now the marriage is over. And if we have died with Christ, again, verse eight, we believe that we will also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him, like it is over us to some degree, because we're still trapped in dying bodies that contain like this mortal enemy. He's trying to paint a picture, a serious picture, like Bonhoeffer, to, so that we'll, we'll, we'll come to arms and not just roll over and play dead. As much as we come to arms politically, we need to do it personally. That's where it begins. For the death that he died, verse 10, he died to sin once for all, for all who believe. But the life that he lives, he lives to God, just like you can live for God because your flesh is your ex. which means you're no longer bound to him so you can live for Christ. And just how do we do that? Well, that's what Paul goes on to talk about over the next three chapters. Romans 6, 7, and 8, part three of section one. And he tees it up in the last verse of our passage for today, verse 11. Even so, consider. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God, in Christ Jesus. Let me read that once again. It's so simple, but so profound. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the last verse of our passage for today, where in a single word, Paul answers the million dollar question, and that is the secret of overcoming sin, at least where it begins. Stay with me now. You might be thinking, these things may be 
true in theory, and I kind of get it now in terms of what's going on inside me. I kind of see it, I guess, but how can I make it true in reality, in me? To which Paul says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. It goes back to the heart of the passage in verse 6 where he says, knowing this, he goes back to the mind again. Knowing this up here, the answer is in really knowing this and considering it, reckoning it to be true. That our old man was crucified with him, that the body of our sin was severed from us in a legal divorce, that we should no longer be slaves to the sinful old man. And he's saying it again here in the last verse of our passage. Even so, same word, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. This is so simple and so powerful. Our constant theme through the next three chapters, Paul's constant theme, again, is that we've been freed from sin because we've been divorced from the old man and united in Christ and so at will, by the power of the Spirit, we can loose our minds from the fleshly old man and link our minds to Christ through live contact with him. We've been separated, divorced, but there's a loosing and a linking that still needs to happen. And it happens in the mind through a miracle mindset, again, that can make a miracle of our lives. Through the truth, as Christ said, that sets us free from sin. So, how does this work out in practice? Let me give you four ways it can work out in practice, and maybe you'll be able to relate to one of them or more. As I said, the miracle mindset is Romans 6, 7, and 8, so this isn't the last time you'll hear of it, but we're starting now. It's like happened to Julie years ago, and it's fairly typical of her. The first time I remember seeing it was way back when we were ministering in Estes Park. She was uh, at the post office there, one that was not exactly known for its courteous clerks, and you dreaded going to the post office. I, I don't know if it's that way today, but it was back then. Um, I didn't ask her actually about sharing this, or I would have lost a great illustration. <laughs> but... <laughs> So she had our three little kids with her who were a whole lot younger then trying to juggle them in this big box of books that, that uh, we needed to mail. And from the get-go, the postal clerk seemed to be upset with her. And so Julie wanted to be helpful. And so she put the box on the scales. But when the clerk saw her do it, she rolled her eyes and said that you're not supposed to do that. Julie had put our youngest on the counter, but after a cold stare from the clerk that was related to the child being on the counter, Julie quickly put the child down on, back onto the floor. The charge came over to $12, and she asked if there wasn't some cheaper way of sending it. And the clerk said, the other way is book rate. Well, the, these are books. Are they all books, nothing else? Yeah, they're just books. Are you sure there's nothing else in here? No, they're all books. So like with this exasperated sigh and a roll of her eyes, mumbling under her breath, the clerk labored to punch the new numbers into her keyboard and it came up to $4, not 12. Julie said that her old man was feeling pretty ugly at this young woman. 
But she stopped herself and thought, am I going to stoop to that level? No, I need to stand tall, to rise above it. It sure won't do me any good to stoop so low, I wrote it down. And it won't do her any good if I do either. And anyway, a stooped over hag is not who I am anymore as a Christian. And it's not who I want to be anymore. And then she found herself saying this to the clerk. I'm really sorry. I can tell I'm frustrating you. The woman didn't look up. But for the rest of the transaction, she was not only civil, but nice. And Julie wanted to connect it with God, so when she left, she said, God bless. Hold that for a bit. What happened in that brief moment? A miracle mindset happened that made a miracle of her life. A simple meditation turned into like this powerful action of Christ through her, welling up out of nothing. When he starts talking to you, when he messes with your head, when he throws some fiery dart your way and a sudden secret smoldering fire is kindled on the inside, you start by drawing the line in the sand. You start by raising up the truth against the temptation and saying, I'm living with someone else's life now and he's given me a whole new life and I'm not to go about to go back to the hell on earth that I had with you. Stop messing with my head. I'm dead to you. And I'm not about to become like you and her in this postal clerk. We struggle not against flesh and blood. I'm gonna love her and hate you. I'm dead to you. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, united with Christ in the likeness of his death and in the likeness of his life. This was Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. This, uh, four ways to apply this. The second is this. We began with his spiritual struggle. Well, here's his, here's his spiritual secret. This will connect with some of you, not with others, but hopefully one of these three illustrations will connect. Here's the second way we can put it into practice. When my agony of soul was at its height, a sentence in a letter from a dear friend was used to remove the scales from my eyes, and the Spirit of God revealed to me the truth of our oneness with Christ as I have never known it before. My friend, who had been much exercised by the same struggle, but saw the light before I did, wrote, but how do we get our faith strengthened? Not by striving after faith, but by resting in our union in the faithful one. Oh, that joy of seeing this truth. I do pray that the eyes of your understanding too may be enlightened, that you may know and enjoy the riches freely given us in Christ, resting in our marriage, in our union with the faithful one. I've been reading a book by Robert Galati, speaking of disciple-making pastors. He is making it happen as a disciple-making pastor uh, in Fort Worth, Texas. He wrote a little more about Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. I've never seen this part of it. Here's what he said. To let my loving Savior work in me his will, my sanctification, is what I would live for by his grace. 
abiding, not striving or struggling, looking often unto him, trusting him for present power, resting in the love of an almighty savior, in the joy of complete salvation, free from all sin. This is not new, yet it is new to me. I feel as though the dawning of a glorious day had risen upon me. I hail it with trembling, yet with trust. I seem to have gotten to the edge only, but of a boundless sea, to have sipped only, but of that which fully satisfied. Christ literally all seems to me now the power, the only power for service, the only grounds for unchanging joy, not a striving to have faith, but looking off to the faithful one seems all we need, arresting in the loved one entirely for time and for eternity. Now that may have sounded like mystical mumbo jumbo to some of you. But here's a third way to put it into practice. It's a famous acrostic by the, uh, the letters K-R-Y. No, reckon, yield. K-R-Y. It's what Julie did. It's what Hudson Taylor did. No, reckon, yield. And then cry out to him as you do. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved, Paul says in Romans 10. In this case, saved from the beast. Know that you're divorced from the old man. Reckon that it's true for you. And then yield to the spirit of Christ in you to be what you want to be through you. All as you cry out to him to do it. What does it look like in practice? Well, here's a fourth and final shot at it when it applies, comes to applying all this. You may have heard it. An old Indian was describing the battle between good and evil in himself. He said, it's like there are two dogs fighting inside of me. The one is white and the other is black. His friend said, so which one usually wins? The Indian answers, whichever one I feed the most. So who are you feeding? The white horse or the black horse? The flesh in you or the spirit of Christ in you? Who are you stoking? Here's one way to feed the beast and then I'll tell you how to feed the beauty. John Piper says you can feed the slumbering beast when you watch too much television. Just an example. If all other variables are equal, he said, your capacity to know God deeply will probably diminish in direct proportion to how much television you watch. There are several reasons for this. One is that television reflects American culture at its most trivial, and a steady diet of triviality shrinks the soul and quenches the spirit. You get used to it. It starts to seem normal. Silly becomes funny, and funny becomes pleasing, and pleasing becomes soul satisfaction. And in the end, the soul that is made for God has shrunk to fit snugly around triteness. And I would say the same is true of a whole lot that's on the internet. So which horse are you feeding? The black one or the white one? 
the truthful one or the trite one. We empower a new man, a new woman, by resting in his truth and in his love as found in his word. By hearing and reading and studying and memorizing the word of God, the word of Christ, by letting it dwell richly in us, like Paul says, the word of the Lord where we connect with the Lord of the word who's in us, who through his word by his spirit gives us a miracle mindset. It almost goes without saying the Bible is where we get this truth of the miracle mindset and a whole lot else. We'd be clueless without it. And as I began by saying, that's why our mission says we seek to know and show the enduring truth and love of Jesus Christ in a day of lies and no one can tell what the truth is because it's the foundation for everything. And that's why our first value is to be biblically grounded in a world of lies. And it's why under and through it all, we're going to be, we're seeking to be a disciple-making family for Loveland and the world. Maybe all this that we've been talking about is a little foreign to you and you're wondering how this can be real for you. Well, you need to be discipled. That's what the church in America most needs, to go deeper, not just wider, by being a disciple-making church, by making true disciples, people who don't just admire Christ, but who are true followers of Christ. Huge difference. through his word, by his spirit, who's in them. And for that to happen, we'll need to find a truly disciple-making pastor. Not just a good preacher. And such pastors are few and far between, so please pray. God has led us thus far, and born by prayer, he will lead us from here to the right man. It's what our country most needs, people who are discipled in God's truth. Like our first value says, we stand on God's truth in dependence on his spirit, reading, studying, teaching, and obeying the Bible as our foundation. Miracle mindset. My mother put it this way in 31 days of praise. So why don't we quiet our hearts briefly together Dial down and tune into him. This is a prayer that shows the experience of one who's been discipled. Lord, I glorify you for the Bible, that wonderful written revelation of you and your plan. As snow and rain fall from the skies to meet our needs, so you have condensed your thoughts, which are vastly higher than all human thoughts, into written down form. I'm so grateful that you cared enough to communicate with us in this clear, unchanging, always accessible way so that your thoughts are now available at all times to refresh and nourish and teach me and that you are still a communicating God speaking these words to me as I am attentive to you as I read and meditate with a listening heart. 
What a privilege it is to store your word in my heart where you can use it at any moment to bless me and guide me and strengthen me, to keep me from sinning against you, to be a storehouse of inspired words that the Spirit can bring to my mind to help others. Thank you that in your word I can see your face and hear your voice. I can discover your will and your patterns for living and serving. Thank you that the Holy Spirit inspired your word and uses it to enlighten and guide me and to change me more and more into your image from one degree of glory to another. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As the worship leaders come back, it's like Carrie Job wrote in her song, one that I think is really fitting as we go uh, into the election. Heal our land. Healing our land starts with us. And so she sings, Spirit of God, breathe on your church, pour out your presence, speak through your word. We pray in every nation, Christ be known, our hope and salvation, Christ alone.